Good morning. This morning, I thought of a scripture. As I looked outside, where it says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's the blessing of having our sins washed away by the blood of Christ. Greetings to you. See some visitors here. Lord bless you for being here. You're welcome to worship with us this morning. I would invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. One of probably the most, one of my, I guess, one of my favorite songs. As I reflect on God's faithfulness in my life, and many of you can, can say the same thing. Uh, we were blessed last weekend by being able to go to a funeral. My sister-in-law passed away at age 89 in southeastern Kentucky. And the Lord gave us a good family time together. We hardly, on Esther's side, we don't get together much anymore because of, well, out of 12 children, Esther is the next to the youngest. So they're all pushing the, the upper levels of their age. And God has been faithful to that family. And so we were able to connect with the next generation probably as much as the, the siblings, Esther's siblings, and just really had a blessed time. And somebody mentioned the fact, well, probably from now on, the Miller reunions on Esther's side will be funeral reunions. And that's just the reality of life as we get older. And so... We were blessed to have a safe trip and see many and just reconnect with people we hadn't seen. And that's the place, the funeral was at the place where we lived about a mile from there back when we were first married in southeastern Kentucky. And I've said already that our address in, in that area was Rowdy, Kentucky, and we lived close to Hazard. So you can just kind of maybe picture in your mind what kind of a place that is. We, the graveyard, we had to be careful that we didn't fall down the hill. It was pretty steep. And so it's just very different than it is here. Lots of hills. I'd like to, this morning, I'd like to begin reading from this scripture. Before we do that, well, perhaps we'll read the scripture and then we'll pause for prayer. I'd like to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. It says here, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, 
we come to you this morning desiring to hear from you. We ask that you would open the word to our understanding. We would, if we are here without the Holy Spirit's presence, we gather in vain. My speaking, my preaching is in vain. So we desire for the Holy Spirit to lead us, to be present with us this morning, to fill us. We ask that you would be with our entire service. We are blessed already to have lifted our voices in worship and praise to you in singing. And we pray also for our Sunday school time today that we could, our time together would be beneficial. Thank you for the snow and the beauty of the snow and the reminder that you have cleaned us up as well as your children. We thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Gird up the loins of your minds. Now, what does that mean? Uh, these people were, as I understand, the people that Peter was writing were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And they may have been Jews. Peter was the apostle of the Jews and was primarily the one that we, of the apostles that was concerned about his people, the Israelites. However, some think that there were a lot of Gentiles. They were dispersed, maybe because of persecution they were facing. Or some think they were dispersed throughout this region, even from the time of the Babylonian captivity many years before. But when he says these people, in those days, in that culture, in those cultures, they wore loose loose flowing robes. And we don't today. I'm kind of glad we don't. I prefer, much prefer wearing pants, I guess. And so when they were attempting to do something, act, be active, uh, running or working, they would have to gird up that means with a belt, you know, the term, I don't know if, maybe I shouldn't say this across the pulpit, but I remember the day when ladies wore girdles. That was to, that's where the, the root word of that is to gird, I think. And so they would try to tighten things up or put on a belt, and that's how we do. That's what the meaning is here. They would gird themselves with some kind of a belt to, to control the, those loose robes as they worked or undertook or even men that fought or were wanting to be active in anything. They would have to gird up those loose flowing robes so that they could maneuver. And so uh, it is with our minds. That's what he's saying here. He's using that illustration to say, Gird up your loins, the loins of your minds. Now, we're going to look at that word loins as well. That has several meanings. In fact, the, the word, the Greek says for that word loins, it says, well, it could be, it's of uncertain affinity, whatever that means. So that would mean perhaps the outward meaning of that word is the hip, the area. The, the deeper meaning, the inner meaning might be a the idea of procreation. And we'll look at that maybe at the end of the sermon as well. 
And it says, as obedient children, uh, or so are minds. And the NIV says there, prepare your minds for action. You know, I, I thought of our instruction class. And I've said this over the years, I think, at a, often at a baptismal, is sometimes we have this idea, perhaps, that, well, once we get baptized, that's the culmination that's now we've made it. Now we've accomplished. In reality, that is only the beginning of our journey. That's where it starts. So he's encouraging Christians, I think, in saying here that to gird up the loins of your minds, we don't relax after we've become a child of God. We continue on. We gird up the loins. It's, and it says even it mentions here, uh, as we'll be not fashioning ourselves, Oh, it says, gird up the loins, you remind, be sober, and hope to the end of the, to the end. So, all the way through, we need to stay focused. We need to gird up the loins of our minds. <coughs> Excuse me. And then in verse 14, it says, as obedient children... Now, he uses the term children. We, we see it frequently in Scripture where he's referring to us as those that have become Christians. We're children of God. That's, what he's, that's the idea here. We're children. As obedient children, it says, we have become children of God. Are we, the question is, are we obedient children? And what does that mean by being obedient children? Then look at verse 15. It says that he is holy. So we are to be holy in all manner of conversation. Now, so ever, does that mean whenever we're talking, we need to be holy? That word conversation has a much broader meaning there than just talking. It's talking about our daily living. As we go about living, our way of life. That's what scripture often means in the New Testament when it's talking about our conversation, that's the meaning. So he says we are to be holy in everything we do. Is that your experience? Are you holy? Now that sounds a little pious, doesn't it? Or maybe a little beyond what we are. What is holy? What does that mean? Really? We are to be holy? Well, holy... Probably a very simple definition is, means right living. Righteousness, sometimes we say. That's being holy. So we are to live that way. Be ye holy, God says. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Be ye holy because I am holy. And we know what God requires. We know even in studying the law that was given through Moses that what holy living consists of. We have a good idea what it means to be righteous. So my title for my message this morning is The Value of Personal Conviction. What do I mean by personal conviction? Well, simply said, I think conviction means to be thoroughly convinced. Personal conviction simply means to be thoroughly convinced 
concerning a given issue on a personal level. That's personal conviction. One of the influences that weakens personal conviction is the fact that Western Christianity has become so broad. If we don't, we can, in a sense, we can define our own Christianity. It's easy to define it by picking and choosing what we want to believe. And that's especially true, I think, in northern Indiana. There's such a broad range of, we could say, even of Mennonite churches or even other churches. So how would I really, what's my personal, how how would I like to live? I can kind of choose how I want to live. I can define my own Christianity. The call to obedience is is somewhat vague. We can slide along without conviction. There appears to be a lot of neutral ground. Several questions I'd like to ask is, who is it or what is it that defines Christianity? Is it us? Is it the church? And how do we gain personal conviction? I'd like to go to a scripture in the Old Testament found in Daniel 1. And we know this story. You don't have to turn to it. I'm just going to read one verse there. But here we come on the, the scene where Daniel and his three friends were taken captive, captive from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar the king. And it would appear like Nebuchadnezzar was a well-learned man, in the, not in the Christian religion, but he would, when he would capture, he was ruler basically of the then-known world or became that way. When they took somebody captive, he would take the choicest of those scholarly men. Uh, these men were chosen, these four men. He, he told his servant, you pick out four men with royal Blood, perhaps. I think Daniel's, were they from the royal court? They were students, perhaps. And they were being trained to be the, the wise men in Jerusalem, as I understand the scriptures. And these four men, uh, Hannah and I, I forget their Hebrew names. Their, we know their, their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel, in particular, is, is spoken of here. And they said, well, you, you put them under training for three years. And they're going to eat for the dainties of the king's table. And this included foods that were, these men, these four young men were not accustomed to. And in fact, it was against the law of God, what they were to eat. Probably included pork and wine and all those things. And it says... In verse 8 of Daniel 1, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. 
meat being the, the food or meals that were going to be provided, they were to come directly from the king's table. That's how they were going to treat these men, and they were going to be instructed and trained in the ways, uh, doesn't say Babylon, but uh, I forget the word that it uses, but they were to be instructed not in the ways of God, but in the ways of the Babylonian gods and the wisdom that was incurred through them. That's how they were to be trained. So, so Daniel, when they were proposed, they were given this overseer, and they, the, he came and said, this is now what you're supposed to eat. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And so you know the story. The prince of the eunuchs said, there's no way. Literally, I'll lose my head if I don't obey the king's orders. So Daniel gave him a test and said, you prove us for 10 days, and we're going to eat this vegetables or the pulse, it says, and drink water. And in 10 days, their, fa- their flesh was fair and fatter, and their complexions were healthy. And so they made that exception. And I'd just like to look at this word he purposed. In the Hebrew, that word purposed means to put. Daniel purposed. He put something. And in this context, it means to put something somewhere. And I like to compare that to conviction. To put is an act of the will. Something is the conviction or the knowledge that he knew that God said, this is not right to eat this kind of food. That's not the diet of the Israelite. So that was the something, to put something somewhere in his heart. Now, we we know the scriptures, when it refers to heart, it's talking about our inner being, the core of our being, our spirit. And so that's what it meant here. Daniel, he had, you know, when we're confronted with something, especially I think of young people, you're confronted with a temptation. And if you've not already decided that this is wrong, It's much easier to fall to that. Or if you've not paid attention, it's much easier to give in. Daniel apparently had been under the teaching and instruction and was a godly young man and had decided earlier before this ever happened to him, he knew what God's commands were. And so it was relatively easy for him to say, I purpose in my heart. This is who I am. I'm not going to sin this way. And so he made the right choice. So somewhere in the heart, at the core of our being, Daniel purposed that he would not defile himself. So 
Friends, I believe we gain personal conviction after receiving knowledge from the Word of God, taking that knowledge and willfully putting it in our hearts. That's an act of the will. And we determine we're going to obey that, what God is saying. I think that's the, that needs to be, the foundation of our conviction needs to be the Word of God. Sometimes people practice what appears to be personal conviction, but it's based on external pressure instead of that inward purpose. I, I, I knew many years ago, there was a young lady that I know, and she was dating a young man and was very enthused about the relationship. And it came to the point where she discovered this young man was raised in a very similar church that she was, but they were from different areas, so they were becoming acquainted with each other, which is the purpose, I think, of dating. And she discovered he had no conviction on the headship veiling. And it grieved her, but she ended that relationship because she, that's, she needed to make that decision. Do I believe that's what God wants me to do? And if so, I, if I don't have a husband that supports that, I won't be able to maintain that. Sometimes in compromise, people focus on their personal conviction or lack of it as that determines whether or not they should obey the scriptures. And I've heard people say, well, I, I don't have a conviction against divorce. Or I don't have a conviction on wearing the covering. Really? So if I don't have a conviction... I don't need to do it? Is that what, what we're saying? I think it is. We're determining what we need to obey or not. And I thought of these verses in Judges, twice in Judges. It says these exact words. And the last time it's in Judges 21, verse 25. I think it's the last verse in Judges, actually. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right. Does it stop there? Every man did that which was right. What's the, how do you finish that? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's not a model for us to follow. I think there's a strong parallel between the children of Israel and many churches today. We do kind of what is right in our own eyes. Well, this is not very, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem, this is not what we, the society we live in will surely not. They'll mock us if we follow this strictly. So I would just like to emphasize that we must be careful not to define 
our own Christianity. Even if our position is biblical, is it because we feel comfortable with it or because we are choosing to follow the word of God? Oh, I'm willing to follow scripture as long as it's not a whole lot of opposition there or mockery or whatever it takes to stand. But it's a different story, maybe, if it's going to mean that I, I'm going to be left alone here. I'm going to be ridiculed or mocked. People won't think very well of me. So the goal of having personal convictions is not the focus on conviction itself, but on the scriptures. In Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Sometimes it seems like personal conviction may appeal to us because we like, we like a person that has strong conviction. <clears throat> we like people who know where they stand. We're kind of attracted to that. Well, I think it's more important that people know that they are standing on the place that is right rather than having strong convictions. So this morning, a question I could ask, are you convinced the place that you're standing this morning is right? Are you convinced that the place that you're standing this morning is right? And how do you know that it's right? In John 17, verse 17, Jesus says these words, Sanctify. he's praying for us. He's praying for you and me here. He's praying for the church in the future as well. Praying for his own disciples. And he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Sanctify means continue to to clean them up, continue to make them more righteous, more holy. Do this through your truth. Then he says, thy word is truth. So that, I think, let's just look at that statement a bit. Thy word is truth. I think that concept is strengthened in our minds when we realize that the Word of God is the truth of God. It's the revealed truth. We have this Bible that we use today is a revelation. For, for example, man never discovered through research that man is a sinner. Did you know that? Well, we do our research, we think through things, these things, we have a committee meeting, and we decide that 
Well, you know, man, it's sinner. No, that's revealed truth. We know that to be truth. It's revealed in God's word. That's part of the mystery it talks about that Paul talks about. Mystery, the mystery of God is revealed to man. Men were inspired or God, it was the inspiration. God breathed to, to man. It was God breathed the words that they were inspired to write, the truth. Truth, let's just look at truth a bit. Truth exists in itself. We're not sitting here this morning and saying, well, let's determine what's truth here. Truth is established. It's revealed. We have it. It's not strengthened by our belief. Nor is it weakened by our unbelief. It's truth. It's established. Sometimes, I don't know if I haven't heard this. But I remember uh, someone saying this when I was just a youngster, and it's a, a, maybe a familiar adage to you as well, but I've heard the expression where God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, that's really not quite, that's kind of a weak view of truth. I think the, the better statement would be that God said it, and that settles it. And I choose to believe it. See, it's not strengthened. God said it and I believe it. That doesn't strengthen the truth at all. You'd better believe it. It's to your disadvantage. It's to your hurt if you don't believe it. So if God said it, that, friends, settles it. And sometimes we get together and we, we want to determine, well, what is truth? Or what we get together, we want to determine a certain th issue. And we have this idea, we have that idea, and oftentimes we really don't just say, well, what really does Scripture say about this matter? And you know, friends, oft it's not always where it specifically states it, but the principles are there. And as we study the Scriptures, it becomes clear what we should do in this matter or in this matter. The truth is where we need to go when we're making decisions for the church, for our own personal lives, for our families. What is being taught? What's the truth say about this? And God will use that. We have enough revealed truth. We don't need further revealed truth. I don't think there will be further revealed truth in this age. I'm sure we'll learn new truths in eternity with the Lord. There'll probably be never-ending truths to know. But we have the truth as complete as God wanted it to be for us to make it, to live victoriously and to make it. And we, we need to take, and I've said this before, I think, when we don't look at the truths of Scripture and isolate a truth here and build doctrine on that necessarily by itself. We need to take the truths as a whole. The context of all the truths in Scripture, what, and that helps us define exactly 
what this truth means when we use the other scriptures and we make, it gives us a, some people don't like the word balanced, but I do. It gives us a balanced view of what scripture teaches. When we take the entire truth and we use it together and we don't go over here and we say, well, this scripture says this and this and this one, when we ignore what it says here, we don't even pay attention to what it says otherwise. And I think here is where the brotherhood can help us. We can determine what truths and what application do we make to these truths. So five things yet that I'd like to share. Uh, what personal conviction does for the believer. The first one that I have here is personal conviction gives us a sense of direction that is biblical. Gives us a sense of direction that is biblical. And that's where I think it gives us a balanced view of what the Christian life is. For example, you know, when it gives the qualifications for ordain, ordaining a brother in the church in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13, Paul writes to Timothy concerning the qualifications of a leader. And he doesn't just simply say, well, the person that you ordain must be a Christian. Well, yeah, but it defines what that Christian looks like. And men, women as well, what are those qualifications? And how do we live? Do we measure ourselves with that? It's not only for the ordained or choosing ordained men. Those qualifications are for Christian men and women. We are to live by that. It defines it. It doesn't just say, well, when you ordain, they need to be Christians. Well, of course they do. But what does that mean to be a Christian? What kind of conviction does that person have? What does he believe? What does he live? It's shown in the way that we live. What our conviction is. So a desire to live what? God said, in, or what Peter said, to live a holy life will cause us to honestly pursue each of those qualifications when he's talking about ordaining. Number two, personal conviction establishes a present and future resolve. It's very easy to live in the present only. Often people are making decisions based on how they're feeling now. They're not thinking ahead. Where is this path going to lead me? You know, if we're headed for the straight, we're headed for glory. We're headed for heaven. We're on our journey here. If you just deviate a bit, Several degrees. You know, they say in, in flying an airplane, you know, you just, if you, if, if you just are slightly off a few degrees, well, that's not bad if you're just real close, you know, and you don't get very far. But if you keep going on that trajectory, you're going to end up way off. That's why it's important. 
It gives us a sense of direction, or it gives us, it establishes a present and future resolve. And it's very easy to simply go with the flow of things. If you're a young person and you're deciding, well, the flow is this way, let's go with the flow. Be it right or wrong, no matter what Scripture says, we're just going to go along with the flow. Philippians, in Philippians 4.1, it says to stand fast in the Lord. Stay there. Stand fast with the Lord. What about change? Earlier I read from John 17.17, 17, where Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them through thy truth. The process of sanctification brings change. But it's based on the immutability of God. We become more like God. If we start our Christian life, we're not where we need to be. But we're where God wants us to be, I believe. And as we're sanctified, as we understand Scripture, we will change and become more to the likeness of God. That's a necessary change, brothers. And we're not basing our change on drift. Well, you know, everybody's starting to do this. That's not a healthy change. When we're just kind of going with the flow. Well, this is the popular thing today. They're starting to do it this way. Well, it doesn't seem quite right, but yeah, we'll go along with that. The church that we visited a while back where my wife grew up in, well, they decided it's... It's all, after all, it's okay to have divorce and remarriage. And so, yeah, okay. I remember a friend I had, an old friend. He's not living anymore. His name was John Miller, by the way. We used to go fishing there when our family was young. He invited us to come fishing. When we had children, which we had seven, they used to get these congratulation cards from businesses and so on. So one day he decided, we're going to find out who this other John Miller is. So they showed up at our house, and through that we became acquainted with him, became friends with him. Well, he was telling me one day that they now have a lady pastor in church. And that's kind of the thing anymore, so he guesses that's all right. That's not a good change. That's not a biblical change. So that change is not right. When we change to become more godly, more biblical, that's the healthy change. We become more righteous. We become more holy. That's what God wants us to be, to be, to be holy as he is holy. The third thing I have here is personal conviction builds in us a confidence in the Word of God. Personal conviction builds in us a confidence in the Word of God. Second Peter, verse, in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. I said earlier, it's there in Scripture. It's given us all things. Scripture has given us, friends, 
Pay attention. Scripture has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We can find direction and answers in, our, in the Scriptures. Through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So when we're confronted with the issues of living, we can with confidence consult the Scriptures. And I don't believe there's a person in here that would doubt Scripture. That's a blessing of our heritage. That's a blessing of having parents that from an early age, we sat around and we were taught what's the truth of Scripture. It's never been a problem for me to believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. I believe that to be the truth. If I would have learned that truth just now, as a 69-year-old, oh, I say no, no. But I don't, we have that advantage. And so Scripture builds in us confidence in the Word of God. And if you're raised in a Christian home, you have a tremendous advantage. You're years ahead of a person that doesn't become a Christian until maybe age 25 or was unchurched, I should say, and came to the Lord. I believe there's tremendous advantage. Paul even talks about that to the Jews. What advantage is there to be a Jew? He says, much in every way. Because to them, we're taught. They were taught of God. We have that advantage. Even if we come from very formal Maybe cold, a lot of cold barrenness in that church. We have a tremendous advantage if we have those, some of those very foundations. So it's important that our thinking is biblical and not only our actions. Those that live closest to us will eventually learn what we really believe in. You agree with that? You know, it was a number of years ago when I think it was Steve Brubaker brought, was speaking here, and he used the term apparent truth. When you come to church every Sunday morning a certain way, dressed and act a certain way, it appears to me. It appears to us that you have this belief. But only your wife or your husband or maybe your children know what your real belief is. What your passionate... It was, I think it was apparent belief versus a passionate belief. We want to be people that have a passionate belief. We don't just want to appear to believe something, but we want that truth to be established in our hearts. That's what a passionate belief is. We can try to pass on our belief to the next generation. And if it's an apparent belief only, we're not going to fool them, and they're probably not going to be attracted to become a part of who, who you are or what you were. But when you have that passionate belief, conviction, I'll stand for this truth regardless then that speaks 
People know who are close to you, where you're at on that scale. <clears throat> Personal belief, number four, uh, lays a foundation for our children to build upon. For he, in Psalm 78, it says, verse 5 and 6, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. He's talking about, he is talking about God. Which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, which should arise and declare them to their children. I think maybe Kendall or somebody was preaching from Deuteronomy 6 lately, or maybe it was Ken, I forget. The importance of not only, it says we are to be that way, but then we, in our daily routine of living, the everyday things, we don't just set a time and say, okay, now we give instruction here. But through all of living, when we're walking by the wayside or driving in the car, when we're going about our work and our son and daughter maybe helping us, that is when how we teach and how we pass on our conviction to our children. And we're told to do that. And I had said earlier in 1 Peter, uh, the verses I read, it says to gird up the loins of our minds. The word loins suggests the idea of the, of the ability or power of procreation. We are to gird up that. We're to pass that on to the next generation, to our sons and daughters, or to the next generation here in the congregation, in the church. Us older ones, those of us that have been established in the faith, are to pass on that, that faith to the next generations. In other words, we are to protect the ability to reproduce a correct Christianity. Let's not be careless. Oh, well, what does that matter? Procreate a correct Christianity. Not one that we're defining. We take the voice of the church and it's beyond what Scripture says. Uh, I, have, I could read articles of where the Mennonite church, the liberal Mennonite church, has gone with that and said, well, the voice of the church actually carries above what God's Word says. That's not, that's not where we want to go. We want to pass on a biblical, foundational, based on Scripture. If our conviction isn't based on Scripture, then it is really no conviction at all. When people begin to think right concerning the teachings of Scripture, it will help them establish personal conviction in their own hearts and minds lives. The last one, personal conviction has eternal implications. Ultimately, the greatest value is the continued spreading of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we need conviction. It's not going to fizzle out or lose out. It will always pass on. God is calling us to do that. And I am concerned about what does the scripture mean when it says, except those days be shortened, there would be a falling away of the very elect. Friends, that's a, that's a dangerous place to be living. 
I think we're approaching those days. I think we need to be extra diligent in living righteous lives, in doing what Scripture says. Righteousness is decided by the Word of God, regardless of my conviction. Conviction isn't an end to itself. So in summary here, a conviction is a strong belief that we have obediently made a part of our life and practice. That's what conviction is. We have made it a practice in our life by our own will because it is the Word of God, the truth of God. Having convictions, friends, is so we're so is is being so thoroughly convinced that something is absolutely true that you take a stand for it regardless of the consequences. May we have that resolve, that conviction. Maybe someday we'll need to die for it. That actually would purify the church, I'm sure, and probably would draw us more than just this haphazard, lackluster life that we see so much, maybe in our own lives even. May God help us. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the word.